Yeah. So if we haven't met, I'm seeing some new faces, which is fantastic. Uh, my name is Mike, and I have the privilege of being the campus pastor here. And we are finishing up a series. Uh, we're actually doing our Be the Church Day specifically at the end of our series where we talk about the values of our church at Mount View Fellowship. And we've talked about our sixth values. Today's our sixth value, which is serve. And then starting um, the, in two weeks, we're starting another series. But we wanted to end this series with us getting back to the community. And so today's message is about having a heart to serve and what it means to serve. So if you would do me a favor and open up in your Bibles to Mark chapter 10. Mark chapter 10, verse 35 through 45. Mark chapter 10, verse 35 through 45. Um, now as you're turning there, uh, how many of you have ever seen the TV show The Office? Some of you are smiling, some of you hate The Office, and I can see it on your face. That's okay. That's okay. My parents can't stand it. My wife and I, we love it. Um, there was one episode of The Office where, if, you, if you've seen The Office, you'll know, you'll, you'll know the episode I'm talking about. But this episode's called The List. And in this episode, The Office, Dunder Mifflin got a new CEO named Robert California. And it was his first day at The Office. He was played by James Spader. He is a snake in the grass. And... Uh, uh, he's, a, he's a terrible person on this show. But he, it's a, at the beginning of the episode, he has his, he's the brand new CEO, and he has a notebook that he leaves at reception. And they find the notebook, and they turn it over, and they went, oh, oh, Robert California, here's your notebook. And then they, she sees something. The, written on there on the front page, there was a line down the middle, and then everybody in the office, their name was either on the left or the right-hand side of the page. And so the whole episode is them trying to find out what the list is for, and what, is the words, what do the names on the left side mean, and what do the names on the right side mean? Have anybody seen The Office know what I'm talking about? And so everybody, they see and they go, well, I, I'm on the right side, you're on the left side, and he's on the left side, and she's on the right side. How do we know which one is good and which one's bad? Well, it turns out that's part of like the fun of the episode. It turns out uh, Robert California takes everybody on the left side of the list, coincidentally, to lunch. And he pretty much at lunch tells them, well, you guys are winners, and the rest are losers. That's what the list was for. And then he goes on, and they tried to have like one of those cute moments where he's like, well, just prove to me that you're really a winner, all of you on the right-hand side. Either way, he's mean, and that's what it was. So in this episode, everybody's wondering, wait, why did I make the loser side of the list? What am I not doing that they're doing? And then everybody on the winner side is like, I did it. I made it. I arrived. Don't know why. Totally ambiguous. He's been here for like three minutes and he already has me like pegged. But they're like, why am I on the winning list and why are they on the losing list? And it, it, it kind of plays into that thing as human beings where we always want to be on the winning list. We do. We want to be winners. We want to be great. And if we were all honest, every one of us in this room, we have... A list, probably unwritten. If you have written out a list of winners and losers, you need to check yourself. <laughs> but most of us, in our heart, we have a list written. And in that list, we have people listed. Some of them are people that they're worth our time, while other people are not worth our time. In our list, we have some people who we believe um, they matter. Some people matter. And then we have people on our list in our heart that we go, they don't really matter. Um, there are certain people that we think count as part of the team, and there are certain people that we, don't, we think don't really count. And this includes almost anybody in our life. This includes the people that you pass by in the store, especially as you grow in a community, you start to kind of quietly 
And privately, like I said, if it's not private and you're posting a list, you're wrong. But in all honesty, we all have kind of a private list of who we think matter and who we think doesn't matter, just like in this show. And Jesus is going to talk to us right here in a couple of conversation that he had with his disciples where he talks about our human tendency to want to be on the right part of the list and why we sometimes put other people on the wrong side of the list. Um, I don't know if you've ever worked with kids. I'll never understand this. Kristen and I taught um, like elementary age Sunday school when I was a brand new believer. And you'd have to line up everywhere you go. You know what I mean? Like, oh, we're going outside. You have to line up. We're outside. Now we're going back inside. You have to line up. And I remember we're all going to the same place. But what do the kids do? They fight to be first in line to nowhere land. We're all going outside. What are they going to do? They're going to fight for who's first. And then when we're all going back inside, they're going to fight for who's first. And if you've ever seen the kids do that thing where they're trying to push each other out of the way, and like they're getting their foot all the way up there, nobody knows why. It's, in, it's ingrained in us that we want to matter. We want to be important. We want to be great. And then you get to high school, and, and, and what do you say when you want to have the passenger seat? Shotgun. How many of you are guilty? Parents, how many of your kids fought over who had shotgun? How many fights over? What's funny is you're rarely, it's not like most shotgun fights are not like we're driving to California and whatever seat you take, you're sticking with it. That's a, that's a fair fight. But we're like going to the store and we're going to argue and be mad at each other over who gets to sit in the front seat. It's like Southwest Airlines. There is no first class. So where do you want to be? In the front, because it makes you feel like I have first class. <laughs> Even though there is no first class. And the seat 20 rows behind is the exact same size as the seat. But there's something about being in front. We all want to be in front. So I'm going to read this passage. I want you to read with me, starting in verse 35. Jesus just got done telling his disciples that, we talked about this a few weeks ago, he just got done telling them for the second time, we're going to Jerusalem. When I get there, they're going to kill me. They're going to mock me. And in three days, I'm going to rise again. It happened, by the way. Um, starting in verse 35. Then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him. Teacher, they said, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. What do you want me to do for you, he asked. They replied, let one of us sit at your right hand and the other at your left in your glory. Remember, he just said he was going to die and then come back to life. You don't know what you're asking, Jesus said. Can you drink the cup I drink or be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with? We can, they answered. Jesus said to them, you will drink the cup that I drink and be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with, but to sit at my right or left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those whom you have prepared. When the ten heard about this, they became indignant with James and John. Jesus called them all together and said, You know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must first become your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Let's pray. Lord, I just pray that you would uh, take away any distractions we have this morning. Pray you would take away any barriers or, or uh, anything that's going to keep us from hearing your word. Lord, I pray you would speak to us today through your word. I pray that it would be interpreted by your Holy Spirit. 
And Lord, I just pray that uh, you'd open up our hearts to be able to receive what you show us. So Lord, we want to be servants the way you served us. And we want the the world to see us as servants the way that we saw you. So Lord, we just pray for this day. Thank you for the things we're celebrating. And um, we love you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So in this one, he says this, these kind of pointed words. Because remember, he's talking about the, gen, the, the rulers of the Gentiles and this culture. He's saying this world lords themselves o- over people. This world, everybody wants to become great. And in greatness, according to the world's standards, is you get served by others. That is greatness. Greatness means you have influence or power or authority over others. Every one of us, according to the world's standards, have some form of greatness, whether we accept it or not. Somebody is listening to us. Somebody is watching us. Somebody gives us authority over their lives. And Jesus says these four very, very powerful words. Not so with you. See, Jesus is pointing out that, yes, James and John, even though some people will say that James and John were being really selfish and pig-headed in their request— Jesus never says that. They said, you're going to die, and we want to be. We want to go through everything you go through. That's a powerful thing to ask Jesus. I mean, that's really what Christians do. We say, Jesus, we want you to have our lives. That's what James and John said. They said, whatever we have to do to be by your side, even into eternity. And Jesus says, greatness is not defined the way that the world defines greatness. Greatness is defined differently. He says, in our world... Greatness means you lord your authority over other people. Greatness, according to our world, says that some people don't deserve to be served. Greatness in our world says that there's a list in your heart that you need to listen to. And that list says some people are worth it and some people are not. Some people matter and some people don't. Some people are valuable and some people are not. That's our world. Our world tells us this. And Jesus says this powerful four words. I want you to say this with me. Not so with you. One more time. Not so with you. Jesus is saying, my kingdom is different than the world's kingdom. My kingdom doesn't operate like that. And my kingdom, if you want to be great, greatness is a, uh, I was about to say greatness is a great thing. Um, Amen. Amen. (laughs) Greatness isn't a bad thing to pursue as long as you have God's definition of greatness. And he's saying, That is fantastic, but you need to understand that what great is, according to my father, is not to be the one with authority, but to be the one who serves the most. The one who puts their life down so that others can live. The one who recognizes that all people, everyone, no matter where they're at in their life or what they're going through, they are worth it. They are valuable. In fact, Jesus is almost like abolishing this this secret list that we write on our hearts about how much somebody's worth. And he's saying that according to my father, there is no more list because it will not be so with you. We are not going to live that way. In my kingdom, if you want to be great, you have to become a servant. See, um, I don't know if you're familiar. uh, There's one farmer here. I know that they're probably familiar with this phrase, pecking order. Um, How many of you have heard of a pecking order? See, I've always known what a pecking order was in theory, but I actually looked it up, and I had no idea it had to do with, like, it was really like a chicken thing. (laughs) So if you raise chickens, this is crazy. The the social atmosphere of chickens is 
there's a pecking order where one will peck another and it can't retaliate because it's in charge. And then somebody will peck that one. And depending on how their social structure works, there's, there's one on top that nobody pecks. And there's one on the bottom that everybody pecks and he can't say anything about it. And they create a pecking order. And we have a pecking order in our world, don't we? In, in our world, there are certain people that are worth more than others. There are certain people's lives who are worth more than other people's lives. There are certain people in our world that we go, they're a little bit more valuable, or they're a little bit worth, more worth my time than somebody else, whether we want to say it or not. There's no notes in your bulletin. You're, you're welcome to take, like, write them all down, or you can just listen. But my first thing is the world has a pecking order, but Jesus does not. See, part of, before we can even jump into serving, we have to recognize why we serve. Because if we serve according to the world's pecking order, we will still only serve those who ultimately benefit us. If the president came in here and said, hey, I need somebody to help move my car, nobody would be like, that's beneath me. <laughs> Maybe one of you guys can do it, but I'm, I don't know if you noticed the mic. <laughs> Maybe take a seat with the rest of the crowd. Nobody would say that. Because we have a pecking order in our mind, and we would all go, he's worth serving. Even Jesus even said this. He said, it's easy to love somebody you love. It's easy to serve somebody who you like. Because we want to serve people we love. We want to serve people we like. We get benefit from serving each other. But what about those that we believe in our minds don't deserve to be served? What about those who we believe in our, in our lists for the sake of their own choices, where they were born, maybe something they've done to you, we've, we've decided that they're not worth uh, our time. See, we, we joke around about it, but they're just like a chicken coop. We have a pecking order in our lives. And one of the great things about Jesus is Jesus says, I don't have one. And if you're going to be a part of what I'm doing in my kingdom, we have to get rid of that list. There is no longer a pecking order. Um, the next one, is greatness is not what you give. Greatness is what you give. It's not what you get. Jesus said in verse 43, Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. See, greatness according to the world's definition is what you get. Greatness is what people give to you, what you receive. Greatness means people under you are trying to consistently honor you. That's what greatness is according to our world. And Jesus flips that upside down and says, greatness is not what you get. Greatness is how much you give. Greatness is how much you give and pour out to other people. Now you see why we had to get rid of that list first. If we have a, a, if we have a list of people who don't deserve it, it's going to be hard to, to live lives as givers. Your next one is, our love for God can be measured by our love for people. I want you to open up. Actually, you don't have to open up. I actually put them on there. Is it working, First John? Yes. See, if you do the thing, it shows up. This is a powerful passage about authentic love. And Jesus ultimately said, he said, you can measure how much you love God by how much you love people around you. Which means if you are not loving the people around you, that, act, that just reflects on your actual love for God. Uh, you can read along with me. I'm going to read this. This is from 1 John chapter 4. Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. 
Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God, because God is love. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only Son into the world that we might live through him. <coughs> this is love. Not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his Son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Now listen to this. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us and his love is made complete in us. Do you see that? God's love is made complete when that love is not just eternalized. It's not just a feeling. But when we take that love and we pour it into other people. As far as I can see from a theological standpoint, that is the bar. That's the measuring stick of our love. If we say we love God, but we don't love one another and we don't love others, what Jesus is saying is, well, that's by definition not love. Because my Father's love will flesh itself out into loving other people. That's how we know if we have love. And then the next one, I just want to talk about how we can abolish the pecking order. It's easier said than done just to say that I'm not going to have a list. It's easier said than done just to say that, you know what, I'm going to start viewing everybody the same and equally. Culture, history, <laughs> memory, <laughs> there's a lot of things that go into play. It's a lot easier said than done to just say, you know what, that's right, Mike's right, Jesus was right. I'm just not going to have a list anymore. Um, it's not that simple, because we're human beings. But... The Bible gives us some pretty awesome examples on how we can abolish the pecking order in our own lives. Where we can get take that, that secret list where we say this person's valuable and this person's not. This person matters and this person doesn't. Where we can take that list and go, okay, how do we actively get rid of that? And there's three things I want to say. First one is we serve our family. We serve our family. And I'm not necessarily talking about church family. I'm talking about like your individual family. Um, I want to tell you a story about kind of the early church. Um, I, I kind of discovered this yesterday. I was actually sharing with some, some folks about it yesterday because it kind of blew my mind. Um, there's a book called The Rise of Christianity, and it's written by a, a, a secular university sociologist who's not a Christian. He's not a believer. Uh, he's a professor at a big university in Washington, UW, and he wrote a book called The Rise of Christianity because as, as a historian and a sociologist, he found that for the first 300 years of Christianity, the church grew exponentially. In, in the first, in, when Christianity kind of started, pretty much right after the resurrection of Jesus Christ, there was about a thousand believers, according to him, from, from what he can find in scripture and from what he can find from history. And then another hundred years after that, there was about 8,000 believers, maybe more. But then by, by year 300, there was, over, there was millions and millions of believers. And he was kind of, from a sociologist standpoint, he was saying, what was it about this church, this Jesus thing, that exploded to the point that it grew exponentially like that over time? In fact, most people uh, attribute the church growth to Constantine when he, when he became a Christian and he was a leader. Um, but that's actually completely false. That was actually when the church started declining. <laughs> He became a Christian. He, he actually became a Christian when more than half of his kingdom became a Christian. It was a political move. It wasn't a Jesus move. And then he made being a Christian 
like a law, like you have to be a Christian. What if I don't want to be? What if I like my pagan gods? We'll kill you in Jesus' name. That was Constantine. So this is before that. So when Constantine, by the time he came on the scene, there was like 35 million believers in, in, in his area, and it was over half his kingdom. So this guy went back and he said, well, if it wasn't Constantine, what was it that made it? And he found, and this is from a historical sociologist's perspective. It's not a super spiritual perspective. This guy's not a believer. What he said was, in Rome, in the first 300 years of the church, Rome had some major, major cataclysmic plagues. Five to be exact. Five plagues that every time they hit, each one of them took between a third and a half of the population with it. Okay, plagues, major plagues. And, and during that time, they can read historians talk about when this plague, if this plague hit your town, the law, like the legal system, the wealthy, and the priests all left, like the pagan priests. They all left because when this plague hit town, it was going to take a third of the people with it, and there was nothing you could do. And everybody who stuck around were poor. So there was five major plagues that happened, and it was killing everybody. Christians, not, it was killing everybody. But here's, here's one of the strange things that happened. In the midst of these five plagues, cataclysmic, I mean, just the absolute worst, grossest thing you can have. They said during certain times, there were upwards of 5,000 to 10,000 dead bodies lining the streets in Rome. Because people were just dying, and they were being rejected by their family members. If you, if you came down with a plague, either your family left you, or you left your family, but nobody stuck around. And they said, here's the crazy thing that happened. He said, this is why I believe, as a sociologist, the Christian church took off. Uh, actually, let me, let me read you a little, little passage from this. This is from uh, the Bishop Dionysus. I'm really proud of how I said that. It might have even been wrong, but it sounds awesome. Of Alexandria. He, he recorded how when, when the plagues hit each time, the pagans and most people left their family to die. And he said the Christians, though, the followers of Jesus did this crazy thing where they would go and take care of those who got sick. They were going out into the streets and taking care of those who were sick. And this is what was weird is he says, but they're not just taking care of Christians. That would make sense to take care of your own. You take care of your own family. He says they were going out and taking care of everybody. Dionysus says this. He says, most of our brother Christians showed unbounded love and loyalty never sparing themselves and thinking only of one another. Heedless of danger, they took charge of the sick, attending their every need and ministering to them in Christ. And with them departed this life serenely happy, for they were infected by others with the disease, drawing on themselves the sickness of their neighbors and cheerfully accepting their pains. Death in this form, the result of great piety and strong faith, seems in every way the equal of martyrdom. I want to read you something that one of the pagan rulers at that time said. He, he saw what was happening with the Christians, and he saw people coming to Jesus in droves. Why? Because when they got sick, they went to their temple, and their temple not only couldn't heal them, their temple was full of dead bodies. Because everybody went to the temple. And they said, but the gods there aren't real. And so people were dying of the plague, and there was just dead bodies everywhere. And then these Christians show up and infecting themselves with the disease so that they could serve their neighbors. Some of them, with smiles on their faces, it says, died in order to serve them. And so they said that, that this historian said that the, the, those who were sick that were tended to, had it was two-thirds less of them died than normal people. 
Because when you're abandoned because you're sick, your death comes a lot quicker. Especially if you've been kicked out into the streets and you've been abandoned by your family. You know you're dying and your body starts to die. But those who were taken care of, only one-third of that amount died. Which means two-thirds of those who got sick who were taken care of by the Christians, according to this non-believing sociologist said, they lived because of the care they received by the followers of Jesus. So then this pagan ruler says that we need to tell all of our people that they need to also start taking care of the sick. And then they came to this, they came to this problem where he said, I can't get my people to touch the sick people. Everybody's turning to Christ. We have to stop this. The way we can stop it is if we did what they're doing. Let's take care of the sick. But then they couldn't get them to do it. Why? Because everybody wants to take care of themselves. And why would I touch and infect myself with somebody who's sick? Well, see, Christians, some, God was, Jesus had done something in them to which they said that it was more rewarding in the long run to take care of somebody who's going to die knowing that I could catch that death myself. That there's more greatness to be found in that than in surviving. And the church grew exponentially because when people survived, guess what? They wanted the Jesus that took care of them. And the sociologists recognized that. Take faith off the table. Let's take the spiritual side completely off the table. He said, when somebody believes in something so strong that they would walk into death's face, right to death's gate to take care of somebody who owes them nothing. In fact, they're the ones who persecuted them. This is a time of extreme persecution. And they would still walk right to death's gate to take care of the enemy. There's something alive about that. And people were recognizing it and they were started following Jesus. See, when they served, they served in a way that we don't see anymore. I don't know if you know this. I'm kind of jumping past my points, but when it came to how Christians serve the world, much of what we have today is because of Christians that started in the first thousands year, first thousand years of Christianity. You know that prior to Jesus' church, orphanages didn't exist. Children were considered useless. Children without parents were considered double useless. Female girls were killed usually at birth. It was, it was a common phrase in that time that if it comes out a female go ahead and get rid of it. That was a common phrase because girls didn't have value. It was the first orphanages were started by Jesus' church because they said they matter, they're valuable, and we're not going to listen to the world. The first hospitals were started because of the church because people were saying we need to take care of them even if they're not ours. We need to serve them. You wonder why the church grew exponentially. If my whole family abandoned me, and some random group of people is like, we'll take care of you. And I'm like, why? And they're like, Jesus? I want that Jesus too. Hospitals. What we know today of hospitals, the church. What we know of the law, of actual fairness, is the church. I don't know if you know that. Harvard Law School started because of Paul's letter to the Romans. Like that was the crux of fairness and equality and justice. Women's rights. I know everybody thinks the church hates women right now. Women's the church was the reason women have rights. No other culture valued women during that time. And then the church all of a sudden said, guess what? You're not worthless. Guess what? You have value. Why do you think women were coming to the church in droves? Because they've been told their whole life that your, your worthiness comes to you having a son. That's your whole point in life. You have a son. And everything else doesn't really matter. And then all of a sudden, Jesus' church comes along and he's like, you were created in the image of God. You have value. You have a place in my church. You have service in my church. If you go read back in Paul's letters, the very end of the book of Romans, Paul thinks about 40 people 
You know, he's like, hey, say hi to this person. And he just goes on this list. And more than half of that list is women. Because women were escaping the culture and because the church served them. What else? Education, economics, science, politics, art. We are today because we had a church hundreds and thousands of years ago that served radically. And if you ask somebody during those first 300 years what a Christian was like, they would say, they believe in something I don't get. That's weird. But man, they just, they have compassion and charity like nobody's business. That's what they were known for. They're like radical forgivers and they're radical servants. That's what they were known for. They, they believe that this guy died and came back to life. But the crazy part is they believe it enough that they actually like serve other people to their, to their demise. You ask people today what it means if you say, hey, what do you think a Christian is? Describe a Christian for me. Rarely are they going to say charity, compassion, and service. Usually they're going to say, and I'm not trying to bash the church, but arrogant, self-righteous, divisive. Rather than the ones who are out in our community serving were the ones putting up walls to keep our community out. Look at the difference between what it meant to be a part of Jesus' church in the first few hundred years and what it means today. And I don't think it's a hopeless cause. I think that the same exact Jesus who was moving in them to act for them to, to live and serve their community in radical ways is the exact same Jesus we have today. I think the exact same. We might not have plagues, but we have disaster after disaster. We have terrorist shootings. You know what? Our plagues today is depression. Mental illness is a plague that is sweeping through our society. And we've bought into this lie that they're not well, so let's give them to a doctor. The doctor will make them well. When, when that's somebody who's sick that we need to be serving, and not just in these walls, out there. We have people, the community action here in town primarily gives food to the elderly who've been forgotten. Those who can't work anymore, whose family has not taken care of them. We could be their family. You see that? We could be their family. And not by handing them a tract that says, here's four steps to know Jesus. See ya. But like actually going out and saying, I actually care about you enough to give you my time, to give you my energy. I'm going to listen to you talk because you have value. And that's what it means to serve. It's not different. So the first one is we serve our family. In the early church, the family, they called that the small church. Your family as a believer was considered a church because your house is where you welcomed people in. When somebody was suffering, you brought them into your home. When somebody was hurt, you brought them into your home. Your home wasn't a, 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 a guarded castle. Your, your home was an open door to your community. In the early church, they always knew they could find help at a Christian store. It was like the original McGruff house. Do you remember the McGruff house? You know what I'm talking about? Nobody? You had that little cartoon dog on your window. It meant if you are in trouble, you could run in their house. Christians were the original McGruffs, all right? The next one is, if you want to um, practically abolish the pecking order, is serve your church. First Peter says in uh, chapter 4, verse 11, if anyone serves, they should do so with the strength God provides so that in all things God may be praised through Jesus Christ. To him be the glory and the power forever and ever. You know, we, we serve our church. We want our church to be a beacon of hope in our community. For that to happen, we need to be functioning. I don't know about you, but if I, if I came here and I'm a single mom with screaming babies, but I want to hear hope, the thing that's going to keep me away is a, is a poorly run nursery. 
That's a simple way to jump in and say, your kids are safe here. I'm going to value them. I'm going to treasure them. I'm going to take care of them so that you can go hear God's word. Sometimes it's as simple as coffee. <laughs> Seriously. If you've been sneaking around with a cup of coffee, you've got a Coke that you, every morning you're secretly putting coffee into it, and then you get to come someplace where it's like, here, and it's a coffee cup, and nobody <laughs> cares. Sometimes it's simple like coffee. But for us to have a functioning, you know, a place, an open door in our community, sometimes it just takes us getting together and serving as our church. And then the last one is serving our community. If you want to abolish the pecking order, serve your community. And I don't mean serve your community once a year. I mean start serving your community. Find a way to get involved, whether that's jumping in rotary, whether that's serving at community action. I know it sounds a little legalistic. I want to tell you last story because we're running short on time. Um, there might be a picture in there, Zach. Is there a picture? Four years ago, my wife and I were going through a crazy hard time. We lost a child in the womb, um, 20 weeks. And then during the surgery, my wife almost died. And then in the neighborhood we were living in, a giant Karen, which is a Myanmar refugee population, moved into our neighborhood. And they were walking everywhere. You couldn't miss them. They were all over the place. Most of them didn't speak English. A couple of the teenagers spoke a little bit of English. And Rob Harder, who runs the Christian Center in Park City, called me up. And he was like, hey, Mike, um, so I heard that you live right next to the Korean communities. What would you think about opening up a food pantry in your garage? And I remember at the time I was so upset. I was so angry. I was like, how dare you? How dare you ask me to open up my home? How dare you put my family in danger or make my house suddenly be an open door all the time? That's my safe spot. And I'm so angry. Kristen remembers. I was angry. I was like, that was really arrogant of you to even suggest it. I barely know you. And right after that, we did a youth mission trip to, to New Orleans, where I saw injustice like I've never seen injustice. You know, if you haven't, if you haven't been to New Orleans since, uh, since Katrina and seen what neighborhoods got rebuilt and which ones didn't, you, you'll be blown away. There, there's still people there that Katrina might as well have happened yesterday because nothing's happened. Don't get me wrong, the other side of the street's all rebuilt and with additions. But I remember when I was there, God really worked on my heart about this community. And when we came back, we said, you know what, we're doing it. So we opened up a few food pantry in our garage. And I'm not trying to be self-righteous. I'm just trying to show you, uh, kind of explain that this family and about four other families like it became some of our closest friends in Heber. I can't, I can't even explain how much God showed up in those two years that we had that food pantry. Most of them have now moved back to Salt Lake or back, they moved away. Um, but for us having a Friday where our doors were open, we had games, we had candy, we had popsicles, and then we had food for their parents, where we just got to hang out with those who have nothing. They were, they were chased out of Burma when it was still Burma. Their, most of their family was slaughtered um, for being Christians, a lot of them. And, and what God did through us just opening up our doors, we still to this day miss it. We're, we're keeping our eye open for what Camus's refugee population is, honestly. And then through this, um, a bunch of people in the church said, we want, we want that. But they couldn't have that because I was at my house. So they started doing a food pantry at a, at a mobile home park in, in Midway. It, it, it's a little block of Mexico right up next to the Zermatt. And they started doing a weekly food outreach where they would play with the kids. That turned into getting them backpacks for school. That, that turned into taking them to sports camp. That turned into now they tutor them at the elementary school. And if you ask them why they do what they do, they'll tell you that it's one of their favorite things in the whole world. Because when you start serving other people, it gets the focus off of you. 
when God rewrites your pecking order and, and, and takes your list and tears it to pieces because you get to see the value in people that normally you didn't think had value or they weren't worth your time. They might have been worth somebody's time. When God gets to show you the humanity and the beauty in these people that he created just like he created us, they just might not be in the same economic social class. It was one of the greatest privileges I've ever had. One of the greatest. Because I felt for one of the first times in my life that I was actually being the hands and feet of Jesus and it was like everything was clicking. It was like God was saying, this is why I created you, to do stuff like this. We need to be the ones, the hands and feet in our community. And one of the best ways to take away that list of who matters and who doesn't matter and who's worth my time and who's not worth my time, serve them. Get to know them. Start recognizing that, that they're just as loved by Jesus Christ as you are. They are just as valuable to God as you. And maybe God placed you right here in Camas or Oakley or Midway or Wanship or wherever you're at. God placed you right there so that you would be his hands and feet with somebody who feels like they're on the right side of the list. They're the part of the ones that are not. They're, they're the bad ones. You have the winners and you have the losers. Well, there's a lot of people who live here who think they're on the loser list. And their family tells them they're on the loser list. Society tells them they're on the loser list. Some, some of them, their church tells them they're on the loser list. And maybe God has you specifically where you're at, Kearns, to show somebody that they are not on God's loser list. And that you find them valuable. And I'll tell you what, you could always give them a tract. Four steps to Jesus. You can. There's nothing wrong with it. But I'll tell you what, speaks much louder is our time and our energy and our heart. That's a, there's no other way. I don't know another way to break, to rip apart that list, to destroy and abolish that pecking order than just to serve other people. And I want to be known as a church where people go, man, Mountain View Fellowship, they're weird. They sing songs, they have a drummer, but man, do they serve. And that one lady who, that one single mom, they went over there and took care of her. They bought her food, they bought her diapers. You know that one older gal who had the perfect yard, but now she had a stroke and she can't mow her lawn anymore? They're going over every single week and mowing her lawn. Community action used to be in shambles. Now it's like running, like functional. It's awesome. I would love for people to say their faith is genuine. They're totally weirdos. I'm totally okay with that. I'll be a weirdo all day. I would much rather them than that than say, I don't know, they come together on Sundays. They make a lot of noise above the doctor's office, but other than that, I don't really know much about them. Let's be weird. And let's serve our community. 